This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Hello, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. We will begin with a quick overview of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and how it relates to people with type 2 diabetes. We will then join our guest speaker, Dr. William Alazawi, to hear his advice on optimising clinical practice. If you're already familiar with recent studies, do feel free to skip ahead to the expert interview around the five-minute mark. Which means we'd better be quick. Fatty liver disease is the term for a range of conditions caused by a buildup of fat in the liver. Although the liver naturally stores and processes fat as part of lipid metabolism, disruption of these processes causes a buildup of fat within liver cells. This excess fat can cause chronic inflammation, leading to a state of disease called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH. As with other forms of hepatitis, this state of chronic inflammation can progressively lead to fibrosis, cirrhosis, cancer, and or death. According to a systematic review and meta-analysis performed by Dr. Siddharth Singh and his colleagues, the rate of disease progression corresponds to one fibrosis stage every 14 years in fatty liver disease and every seven years in NASH and is doubled by hypertension. But how common is NASH? Estimates vary, but a recent meta-analysis of 80 studies by Dr. Zobar Yonosi and colleagues suggests that approximately 55% of people with type 2 diabetes have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD. This was highest in Europe, with a prevalence of 68%. In terms of NASH, the global prevalence among people with type 2 diabetes was 37%, and 17% of these had advanced fibrosis. What complicates these estimates is that NASH can't be differentiated from NAFLD without a liver biopsy, according to both European and American guidelines. Although non-invasive assessments are sufficient to diagnose NAFLD and identify patients at risk for fibrosis, NASH has to be diagnosed by a liver biopsy. These same guidelines, published by EASL and AASLD, also note that no currently available therapeutic can be recommended to treat NASH. Although there are limited data on the use of some diabetes medications, such as pioglitazone, in improving liver histology, the only recommended treatment for NASH at this time is weight loss, with a 7-10% to reduction in body weight associated with improvement of liver histology and risk markers. So what does all of this mean in terms of daily clinical practice? To answer that question, Stephanie Leonida interviewed Dr. William Alazawi, clinical lead for NASH at Bart's Health NHS Trust in London, to learn more about this condition. So for my first question, Doctor, just how common is NASH and its resultant complications in people with diabetes? Yes, thank you. So um, people with diabetes are certainly at risk of having uh, fat in the liver. And that's really tied up with the insulin resistance that goes along with type 2 diabetes in particular. So there are a lot of people who have fat in the liver, but not everybody who has a fatty liver has NASH. What do I mean by that? Well, um, for a lot of people, maybe up to three quarters of people with diabetes, fat in the liver is a frequent finding, so much so that diabetologists often tell me that it's just, quote, diabetes in the liver, close, close quote. And that may well be true. NASH is a subset of fatty liver disease. Patients with NASH have evidence of, of liver cell injury, inflammation, and fibrosis. Now, clearly, these are 
findings that can only really be determined on a liver biopsy. And that's the problem with NASH. The term non-alcoholic steatohepatitis refers to those three pathological features. And so if you haven't got a liver biopsy, it's almost impossible to make the diagnosis of NASH. Now that doesn't mean that everybody who has a fatty liver who has diabetes needs to go on and do a liver biopsy. But it does mean that we need to be careful when we uh, use the diagnosis of NASH. That is to say, if we're going to ascribe the term NASH, we need to know that there is histological evidence. Otherwise, what we're really saying is this is a patient with fatty liver disease and abnormal liver tests. It is a patient with fatty liver disease and non-invasive evidence that they may have liver fibrosis, both of which are clinically important, but they're not specifically NASH. So go back to the original question, just how common is NASH? Well, we think that around three quarters of people with diabetes will have a fatty liver, of whom approximately one in six, maybe even more, um, depending on things like age, ethnicity, and other comorbidities, will have non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And of those, a further subset will have fibrosis, who will go on to develop cirrhosis and liver cancer. Now onto my next question. There are limited data available regarding the use of antihypoglycemic agents in treating NASH. However, some of these do seem to indicate some benefit. Do you have any advice for selecting diabetes medication in patients with confirmed NASH? The short answer is there's no published data that uh, would change the way in which um, drugs are licensed at this stage in terms of antihypoglycemics. We we know, and there's a lot of interest in um, uh, drugs such as GLP-1 agonists, there is interest in lots of different classes of drugs, but uh, the data as to their efficacy in NASH, as in uh, the ability to either reverse the inflammation or the fibrosis, um, don't exist yet. There's obviously been a small lean study that's uh, paved the way, but that was um, had less than 50 patients in it, and so probably not enough to be changing practice. Nevertheless, I think the message I would give to my diabetes colleagues is that good control of um, glycemia, good control of diabetes uh, is important and is going to be beneficial uh, to our patients. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily be swayed by the fact that a patient has NASH at this stage. The data are emerging and watch this space. And therefore, I guess the message is, don't let the NASH get in the way of your decision making. The question I get asked a lot is, can we start statins if indicated? And the answer is yes, if indicated. Um, and uh, I wouldn't let the NASH stop you starting a statin. Finally, the other thing that I think we underuse, certainly in the UK, is metabolic surgery, um, for which there is very good evidence in um, patients with diabetes, and certainly cohort longitudinal studies, in uh, particularly from the French, showing that there is an effect on uh, liver histology. So in terms of antihypoglycemic treatments, those are the things to consider. Now, for my next question, doctor, with weight loss being the only intervention recommended in the guidelines, 
What advice would you offer patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and suspected NASH? Are there specific lifestyle interventions with proven benefit? What everybody will be offering their patients is behaviour and lifestyle advice, focusing on weight loss and exercise. And really the diabetologists are way ahead of the hepatologists when it comes to understanding uh, behaviour and lifestyle advice. And to be honest, most of the uh, uh, advice that is given to patients with liver disease has been borrowed from diabetes. Unsurprising, because often they're the same patient. But reinforcing those messages is going to be important. There's excellent data that weight loss of over 7% of starting body weight can improve liver histology. And therefore, we shouldn't really be only rushing to um, interventions of pharmacological or surgical types, but actually reinforcing those important behavior messages. I have to say my personal practice is not to get too caught up on the specific um, interventions. And um, in our service, we have a nurse who um, uh, is a specialist nurse in NASH and offers advice that is um, uh, relevant to our patients. And a lot of that has, as I said earlier, been done in collaboration with the diabetologist and we've borrowed an awful lot of what we tell patients. So I think the overall message here is there's nothing specific. The data in terms of whether we should be suggesting a particular length of time or a type of exercise or a particular type of diet, those um, are uh, broadly uh, consistent with each other in that they say that if there is a change, then that's beneficial. But I don't think there is one clear magic diet or um, lifestyle program. Now for my next question, for patients who are considered at risk of progression to NASH, are there any lifestyle amendments you would recommend, for example, an altered diet or reduced alcohol intake? So you ask for patients who are considered at risk of progression to NASH. Now, I think that's the key. The key is to identify those people who are at risk of progressive liver disease. Because what I said at the top, not everybody with diabetes and a fatty liver has got NASH. And not everybody with NASH will go on to progress to cirrhosis and uh, liver cancer. So what's important is risk stratification. Now, there are a number of non-invasive tools that we can use, whether it's um, the NAFL fibrosis score, FIB4, ELF testing, fibroscanning, whatever it may be, these tests of fibrosis, not just of the inflammation and the liver cell injury, but these non-invasive tests of fibrosis allow us to risk stratify patients who are likely to develop progressive liver disease versus those for whom the liver is unlikely to progress to advanced stages. And that's a really useful decision node. And so when you're thinking about who you recommend, who you give your recommendations to, I would want to give those lifestyle recommendations to everybody um, with diabetes. I don't think it's necessarily any different based on the fact that they've got NASH or otherwise. Those recommendations are the same. I think that's an important message to get across is that the behavior and lifestyle advice that's being given in a diabetes setting um, needn't be any different just because a patient has got uh, liver disease. Reinforcing it may be helpful. So once we've identified those patients who are at risk of progressive disease, those patients with indeterminate or high-risk non-invasive scores, then actually we're thinking, yes, about lifestyle and uh, intervention. Maybe that's going to be um, feeding into the decision 
making on the part of the patient as to whether they wish to engage in this behavior and lifestyle change. Again, we said there's no specific diet or exercise regime that is going to work. You talk about reducing alcohol content. Alcohol content is, oh, alcohol consumption certainly can lead to liver injury if, if we're drinking in excess of recommended limits. That's 14 units of alcohol a week. But actually, if you think about the alcohol in terms of its caloric intake and the, you know, the associated eating that goes with drinking, then reducing alcohol consumption plays a role independent of its directly toxic effects on the liver. So I think the message here is that we want to offer our lifestyle recommendations to all. There is a broader benefit for people with diabetes, irrespective of what's going on in the liver. We need to be realistic about the fact that not everybody who has fat in the liver or some funny liver test is going to go on to develop a significant life-threatening disease. And therefore, we need to focus our efforts on those individuals um, uh, who are at increased risk. Now for my last question. What key takeaway recommendations would you have for our audience? Are there any actions they can take tomorrow to help reduce the risk of hepatitis, cirrhosis and liver cancer? Well, that's a really, that's a really good question. And I'm very glad that you slipped the word hepatitis in there. So I would say that abnormal liver tests are not to be ignored. And that's, that's my key takeaway message. Patients with abnormal liver tests um, are at risk of having liver diseases that are treatable. It's important that people who have been identified as having an elevated liver test or having a fatty liver and ultrasound have some further testing to exclude important liver diseases such as hepatitis B and hepatitis C. In terms of actions to take tomorrow, I would say that if you're going to identify people with abnormal liver tests, exclude other causes of liver injury, and then risk stratify patients. You will identify patients who are at risk of significant liver disease, and I think just as importantly, be able to um, confidently say that you have uh, assessed individuals who have got these abnormalities and can reassure them and yourself that they're at low risk of progressive disease by, for example, ruling out viral hepatitis, autoimmune hepatitis, and also ensuring that they are not at significant risk of having liver fibrosis at present. There are lots of good guidelines out there. Um, the Joint European Associations for Diabetes, Obesity and the Liver have got some very good guidelines. There have been some really good guidelines from the British Society of Gastroenterology recently. And if in doubt, I would call your local friendly hepatologist. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Alazawi. We've come to the end of another session. To sum up, more attention should be given to liver health in people with diabetes. Although all type 2 patients would benefit from normalisation of weight, the key is to identify people who are at risk of progressive liver disease. Non-invasive tests can be used to stratify patients based on risk of advanced disease. And although lifestyle recommendations will be the same, this can help to firstly reinforce the importance of weight loss and secondly, connect patients with specialist hepatology services. If you'd like to hear more from us on the latest developments in diabetes, you can subscribe to the podcast across all major apps or stream individual episodes from our website. If you found this episode useful, please leave us a review or tweet us at DKI Practice. 
You can also access our free accredited CME content at www.knowledgeinpractice.eu. Thank you for joining. If you have any further questions for our experts or if you want to share your own clinical experience, join the discussion online using the hashtag NASH in Diabetes on Twitter. We look forward to hearing your thoughts.